Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We are talking about what is heaven like? And I'm really excited about how this is going to play out today. What we're going to do is for the first half of this message today is we're going to, um, I'm just going to share with you various Bible passages that describe this place called heaven. And then after that, we are going to invite you to take your cell phones out and you will be able to text in any question you have about this thing called heaven or the afterlife. And I will do my best to try to field them and answer them on the spot. Does this make sense? All right, so I want to go back last week and I want to revisit something that we looked at in our series of myths. And we said this, myth, heaven is forever. What we think about as heaven is not forever. To think that the Christian hope is to die and go and be with Jesus and stay there forever does not do justice to what the Bible is all about. Now I shared an example last week to try to visualize this and I want to do it again just to kind of set up what we're actually talking about today when we talk about this thing called heaven. I had three volunteers here last week. One was called October 7th, 2012 at 9.19 a.m. One was called Eternity and one was called the Risen Christ. If you are October 7th, the Risen Christ or Eternity, would you please come forward at this time? Would you please come forward at this time? <laughs> Steve, you are the risen Christ. Okay, apparently October 7th is in the past, so it looks like I need an October 14th at 9.20 a.m. this morning. Can I have an October 14th, 2012 at 9.20 a.m.? Thank you. Look, we have October 14th. 2012, like four people are happy about today. And I need eternity. Who's eternity? Can someone be eternity? Oh. Look, everyone wants to be eternity in the room, all right? <laughs> this is October 14th, 2012 at 9.20 a.m. Thank you very much. Please step this way about five feet. This is eternity. Look, it matches your shirt. Go, eternity. Go. Go into eternity. Go into eternity. And so here is our timeline from this moment in time. Keep going, eternity. Thank you. <laughs> The fabric of time has just unwound. <laughs> and so we have eternity from October 14th, 2012, 9.21 a.m. into eternity. And somewhere on this timeline, the risen Christ is going to come. So risen Christ, you know your job. Here we have the risen Christ, all right? Now, today, when we are talking about what heaven is like, and what most people think in regards to this thing that we call heaven is not beyond the risen Christ. It is not eternity. The Bible will call this the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, John, when he sees eternity, says, look, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the former heaven and earth have passed away. So, we live between here and the risen Christ, which means when people die before the risen Christ returns, they go to a place called heaven, which exists here, not there. So when we are talking about today, what is heaven like? Today, what I want to do is specifically talk about here, not there. Here is today, there is in two weeks when we talk about the resurrection of the dead. Are you with me? Okay. Can we thank October 14th, the risen Christ in eternity? 
Now, there's a real trick with heaven. It's a trick on two sides. To not go beyond what is written. It is easy in, in, in wanting to speculate and dream and imagine what heaven is like to start conjuring up all kinds of images and metaphors and ideas. And this is okay, provided that these do not become doctrinal bedrocks for us or become the foundational truths that seem to go beyond what scripture has to say. The thing with this, this place called heaven is that it is not forever. It is not the sum total of God's promises to us. It is not ultimately the Christian hope. And it is not where we're to put our ultimate faith. However, it is still really, really good. And the Bible still has things to say about it and enough to say about it that we can approach life and death in this world with a great deal of hope. So what I'd like to do with you now is begin to go through a series of passages talking about this time period called heaven, which theologians will call the intermediate state. The state of our soul who are believers in Christ before Christ comes again to raise us from the dead. And I think what you'll see as we begin to go through these passages is that life in heaven is an extension of life here now as we know it and yet is not the total life package that God has promised in times to come. Now, when we talk about eternity, when, when the Bible talks about eternity and the hope that we have for eternity, resurrection and that time, it seems to drip off every page of the New Testament. It's everywhere. Surprising to most people that when the Bible talks about heaven, as we're describing it now, or the intermediate state, believe it or not, it has relatively little to say. But what it says is really, really good. Let me share some passages with you. From Philippians 1, Paul is at the end of his ministry. Paul is in prison. Paul is reaping the rewards of the life he has given to God, and the rewards do not seem good. He is watching his life's end before his eyes. And in writing to this Philippian church, he says to them, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body... That will mean fruitful labor for me. There's still a lot of good stuff I can do if God keeps me here. Y yet, which do I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two because I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul is at a place in his life where his life has come to an end. The suffering has heaped up, and he knows what the presence of God means. And you see it in, the, in this passage here, kind of dripping off, off his words, this, this, this hope, this yearning to say, it's time to put life as I know it on this earth behind me. I am yearning for heaven. Now, it doesn't tell us a lot about what heaven is like, does it? You don't see vivid description. You don't see a play-by-play -play of the events that are going to take place there. But what you do see is this. For Paul, in his mindset, to go to heaven is viewed not as loss, but as what? Gain. In fact, he goes so far to say, you know, I have family here. I have friends here. I have work to do here. I see things that I want to accomplish here. And yet, Jesus is there. 
And so I'm torn. How many people in life do we meet? How many times in life do we find ourselves torn between the desire to stay here and what this world has to offer and the connections and the loved ones we have and yet simultaneously going, there is something so much better out there. And you see Paul yearning, going, I want to be with Christ. Because whatever heaven is, Paul knows this, it is better by far. Let me share another passage with you here this morning. And I invite you to take out your Bibles. It was just way too long and dense to put up here. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 17. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 17. Here's what's going on. These believers in Thessalonica, the city to which this letter is written, they knew deep in their bones what Paul had to say about this thing called the resurrection of the dead. They knew the Christian hope probably better than many who are believers today understand the Christian hope because they knew the real hope was that Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, he is setting all things right. And when he sets all things right, we get to live with him. Not just some ghost floating in the sky, but we get to actually live with him for eternity. And here's the problem, and here's what's going on. The apostles are preaching. Jesus is coming soon. The kingdom is going to come. The kingdom has been ushered in. Life begins now as we know it. But then their friends, their family members, their parents, their grandparents, they're beginning to die. And, and this church is starting to go, what does this mean? What does this mean? Because I thought Jesus came to bring life. I thought Jesus came to reverse death. I thought Jesus came to reverse the old age into the new age. I thought this wasn't supposed to happen anymore. If our hope is resurrection and the kingdom has come, why are people still dying? And what does this mean for them? And they were starting to lose hope. They were starting to ask questions like, so, so what happens to them? Where do they go? If the hope is resurrection, what happens to my loved ones now? And this is what Paul has to say. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those, and your version probably has something like this, who have fallen asleep. Okay, he's not talking about people taking a nap here. It's a euphemism for death. We do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep, those who have died so that you grieve like the rest who do not have hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we, will tell, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them who, with those who have died, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever." What's going on? Well, I think there's a couple of important things to glean out of here about this place that we call heaven. 
What we see from 1 Thessalonians is that those who die, who are believers now, before Christ's return and eternity begins, get to be with Jesus. We saw this in Philippians. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And here Paul telling these, these, Thessalonian, these Thessalonican churches, don't lose heart. Where's your grandma? Where's your husband? Where's your dad? Where's your wife? They may have died, and this may not be what God has intended. But God has them. They are with Christ. And in fact, he goes so far to say, don't lose heart. Because we who are still alive, we who are waiting for Christ's return, it's not like we even get to see Jesus first. Those who have died before us even seem to be in an advantage spot. They seem to be a little bit farther ahead in line. Because when Christ returns, they're already with him. And they're coming with the entourage of heaven to return to this earth. There will be resurrection. But they are leading the parade with the risen Christ coming to await the hope. So don't lose heart. Death is a reality. But if death comes, you are with Christ. You lead the way with him. You are with him already tasting the advent of eternity. Which leads to another interesting thing to draw out of here. And it brings up the question, okay, but what is it actually like? I mean, when I get there, right, what am I going to be doing? What is it actually like? I mean, do I sit on a cloud and play a harp or how do I occupy my time? And it's fascinating to me the metaphor that Paul uses. Those who have fallen asleep. What is heaven like? How far do we push this idea of those who have fallen asleep? Now, I mean, you go to a funeral, you see where the metaphor comes from. I mean, take any little kid under the age of seven to a funeral to go and pay respects to a loved one, and you're going to hear things like, it looks like they're sleeping. And it does, doesn't it? It's led some to conjecture, some to, to ask, some to believe, okay, is heaven like sleep? Is it like when you die, you go to sleep? And then, like sleep, you don't really understand the passage of time. And then when Christ comes again, you kind of wake up and go, oh, I feel great. Maybe it's that way. I don't know. The Bible doesn't really speak a lot about what the state of the soul is like after we die. Some posit that it's a conscious existence, that we're fully aware, that our souls are completely aware with Christ. I personally think the Bible tends to point that way, and we'll look at some of that in just a little bit. But I gotta tell you, on the other hand, I know that what we experience in heaven is not the full board reality of what God has promised in the future. And I don't know about you, but sometimes sleeping for a long time sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Someone tells me I get to take a nap with Christ for a few hundred years, I'm saying that's better by far. Either way it happens to play out, we don't need to be afraid. Because we know we're with him. Luther had actually a fantastic way, I think, of, of trying to play with this and, and visualize this. He said, you know, when I think of heaven and I think of hell, I tend to think about it like this your best dream or your worst nightmare. And then when resurrection comes, 
Waking up to realize that your dream or nightmare has actually come true. If heaven is like your best dream, that sounds pretty good to me. But let's keep going. Another one I'd like to show you today is from Revelation chapter 6. That might go counter to this thing we call sleep. And when John's seeing this vision of the time that we exist in right now, and he sees heaven in the temporary as we know it right now, he says, I saw the fifth seal. And when it was opened, I saw the altar, I saw under the altar of heaven, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Here's people in heaven who have given their life for Jesus. What's fascinating to me about how John sees this vision is he sees them in a conscious state of reality. And not just conscious of what they're experiencing now, but conscious of what has gone before and what continues to exist on earth. They seem to cry out, God, how long are you going to put up with this garbage down here? How long are you going to let suffering continue to occur? How long, O oh Lord, till you return and see your promises through? How long till you vindicate your people. Now the difficulty with a passage like this as well, I mean, let's face it, it comes out of Revelation. So it's just plain weird. And it's loaded with symbolism and imagery and metaphor, and it leads one to ask questions like, how literally are we supposed to take what John actually sees here? I don't know. But on one hand, you see Paul describe something like sleep. On the other hand, you see John describe something like conscious existence. What is heaven like between the spectrum of the two? 1 Corinthians 15. It's another passage. And it goes on to say this. And I flagged a couple passages that I want you to hone in on. Listen. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when this has happened, and the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, and resurrection is here, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed in victory. You look at classic liturgies. I think of the ones I do. Pretty much at every graveside funeral I've ever done, this passage has been read. It's a picture of what is yet to come in eternity. Despite the condition we happen to be in now, as we wait. Paul says we will not all sleep. That the real hope is that we will be changed. That it will happen like that when Christ returns again. And then he puts on this other line that I bolded for you there. Something that I just want you to think about when you think about heaven now. He says the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. That the bodies we have now, or the bodies that go to decay in the ground, while our spirit goes to be with Jesus, 
have something greater awaiting. That when resurrection time comes, we will be changed into something imperishable and immortal. Now mortal, then immortal. Now perishable, then imperishable. In death now the body decays, but the soul must clothe itself with the body that is yet to come. Are you with his train of thought? Which means one way you could think about heaven right now is this. Naked. Which might be pleasant for like two of us and seems entirely unpleasant for the rest, doesn't it? Because what is, what is heaven fundamentally? My soul is showing. It's kind of out there. It's not covered anymore. It's not the full way it's supposed to be. And so what we see in heaven is this idea that we wait. We wait for something to happen. But we wait in a time and in a place that is better by far. It is not a waiting where we're abandoned. It is not a waiting where we are vulnerable. It is not a waiting where we are forsaken. It is waiting with hope. But the Bible wants us to know it is still waiting for the promise to come. You see these passages about heaven. And I know it's, it's led so many people to wonder, okay, I've got an image here, I've got a metaphor here, I've got kind of a feeling here, but what is it like? Maybe it could be preceded by the question that goes like this, where is heaven at? Where am I actually going when I die? It's going to feel kind of simplistic, but this is the best way to answer it. Where is heaven? It's where God is at. And see, this is important to think about because it says something actually profound. See, heaven is not just like this awesome piece of real estate that God happened to stumble across and go, man, I'm setting up camp here. No, what makes heaven so amazing is that God is there. And if you think that God is the source of life, of joy, of goodness, of peace, of wholeness, of prosperity, and every good thing that this world glimpses at, then to be in heaven is to be in a place where you find that in concentration. Where do you find light? Go towards the sun. Where do you find everything good that God has to offer? Go into his presence because it emanates from him. Which means the closer we get to God, the closer we are into every good thing he has ever devised for you and I to experience. No wonder Paul looks at it and goes, it's better by far. In fact, the Bible will describe it in such a way that, that, that in Revelation it will say the people in heaven, day and night, are so lifted up, are so enraptured, they can't contain themselves. They just like worship nonstop 24-7. Revelation 5 puts it this way. It says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. He's in the throne room of heaven seeing this singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Now I know what some of you are thinking. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, church 24-7, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I would say kill me now, except it would get me there sooner. Well, that's because you and I, we don't know what church is supposed to be like. We fumble around down here on the earth trying to figure it out and messing it up. And 
and, and screwing our way through it and everything else. Like a bunch of little kids trying to, oh God, how does it work? When all the while there is this thing going on, echoing now in eternity, that is better by far than anything you and I can imagine. What is heaven like? Is it sitting around going, well, okay, I guess we'll say it again. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and glory and honor and power and might forever and ever. 99 bottles of beer on the wall, 99 bottles of beer. Start at a billion, work your way back, repeat again until Christ comes again. No wonder the people in heaven are crying out, how long, O oh Lord, how long? It's because we don't know what heaven is like. But to taste it to be there, to have the presence of God wash over you in such a way that every fiber of your being screams out with joy and wonder and glory and might at the one who is in your midst from whom all glory emanates. And God says, I got that in store for you while you wait. It's kind of like this. Have you ever been to Disney World? Okay. Have you ever been to Disney World and of course you get in line for the attraction and they have the tag like sitting out there and you know, you don't have your fast pass on this one, all right? You, you got like you, you, this attraction, it's like a 90 minute wait. And it's like the goal is the attraction, but now you wait. The goal is a resurrection, but in heaven you wait. But we all know at Disney World they do something different than you're going to get at Six Flags. They have entertainment while you wait. Go to Six Flags. No, you just sit out in the sun on a 98 degree day going, how long? But you go to Disney World. They've got interactive things. They've got games. They've got stuff going on. It is not the end hope. But it's done right. Wow, what an amazing wait. Those of you who have been around Fellowship of Faith uh, for a little while, we, we've tried to describe what the worship of heaven is like. To get away from to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, okay, as humans here on earth, we're never going to come close, but we're going to give this a whirl one more time to just try to give a taste of what the 24-7 might be. Give it a whirl. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and thunder shouting. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him be honor and glory now and forever. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they sang. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every people, tribe, and language standing before the Lamb, and together they said... That still doesn't compare to heaven. But it sure is a whole lot better than... To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Think about the most edge-of-your-seat exciting experience you have ever been in. Think about those times when you stood in a crowd of thousands. All there together with the same hope, the same purpose, the same yearning. Think about the energy, the excitement, the presence, the anticipation. Think about what it did to you. Think about how it got inside of you. 
Think about how eternity, in a way, seemed to stop, and time slowed down, and all there was was that moment. And think about that moment defying all time, stretched out until Christ comes again, immersed in the worship of God and the Lamb, going on until Christ comes again. Picture that, and you might start getting close to what heaven is like. And I gotta tell you, that sounds like a pretty good wake to me. I can understand why Paul says things like, yeah, that, better, by far. So guys, I want to invite you to take out your phones. And if you have a question today on heaven, you can text it to 1-815-314-0363. Again, that's 815-314-0-F-O-F. Start texting your questions in right now about heaven, and I'm going to start receiving them in real time, and let's see what we get, all right? Here we go. Will we have to go to the bathroom in heaven? <laughs> no, you will not have to go to the bathroom in heaven, which means you never have to leave the party. You never have the urge because, guys, you don't have a bladder in heaven. You don't have kidneys in heaven. And I'm not saying you're on some colostomy bag either, all right? So no, good news. Will my pets be in heaven? Well, the Bible doesn't say if your pet will be in heaven, but I will tell you this. I don't know if your pet will be in heaven, but I do think your pet will be risen from the dead. Are mediums real, as are large and small? Yes. Um, are mediums real? I believe so. I believe a lot of mediums who are out there today are quacks and charlatans, if I can use a 19th century term. Um, but I do believe that there are spiritual forces at work that people have learned to harness, and I believe that's why the Bible is so adamant about warning the people of God off of omens and witchcraft and astrology and all these things that try to intersect with the supernatural world. Going to a medium seems, well, it's kind of like this. God is sitting here revealing heaven to us, and we know he's telling us the truth. Mediums, assuming that the one you see is true, might be coming to us and they're groping in the dark. Maybe they've come into something a little bit more than someone else, but the power of deception in the spiritual world, the power of darkness in the spiritual world, mm. there's an interesting story. I believe it's 1 Samuel 17. It might be a little bit later. Samuel has died. Saul is the king and things have gone south and David is on the ascension to the throne. Saul goes to a medium. He's called the Witch of Endor. I think Bewitched grabbed some terminology out of there. And he goes to this witch in a city called Endor, and Endor conjures up the spirit of Samuel. Let me just say it was not good things. I'm going to take a guess and say that there's someone who misses a family member bad and would do anything to be in contact with them again. You don't want to do it that way. Come talk to me later. In heaven, are you with your family? Yes, and your friend's family, and their family, and their family too? Thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, you are not flying solo in heaven. And in case you're looking at it the other way going, my gosh, I want to get away from my family for an eternity. 
There is no sin or mourning or sickness or crying or pain or hate or envy or jealousy or rivalry or all that garbage that we bring into our families here on earth. It is family the way it is supposed to be. Will I see all my loved ones that have passed? Well, I will qualify this more next week. Will you see loved ones who have passed who are in Christ? Yes. Will you see loved ones who have passed who are not in Christ? Sadly, no. Or maybe fortunately, no. But I will get into that one more next week when we talk about hell and how to wrap our minds around it and what it means for those of us who have even lost people and wonder. Are you going to watch the show, The Walking Dead, tonight? If so, do you think of it, and what would you do if you were with your family? Um, I was not planning on watching the show The Walking Dead tonight. I am now very intrigued to watch the show The Walking Dead tonight. Please TiVo it for me. Um, our cable box went on vacation. Will there be fighting in heaven with people that you normally don't get along with? No. Because there won't be sin in heaven. There won't be human corruption in heaven. All of us are intimately laced with a sinful side, meaning all of us inherently are self-seeking and looking out for what's best for me. In heaven, those things are gone, past, buried, and with it all their residual effect. Is seeing friends and family in heaven a purely Victorian concept meant to comfort us. Now, when I first glanced at this question, I just saw Victoria, and I went, where is this going? Ah, read the whole sentence. No, I don't believe it is. I don't believe it is because the idea of seeing friends and family has been discussed by theologians way before Queen Victoria was even on the historical grid. Now, you're not going to be able to open up to like Revelation chapter 4, verse 13, and, and it's going to say something like, when I die and go to heaven, I'm going to be there with my mom shouting, we will rock you together. Okay? However, when it does describe the people of God together, worshiping together, and theologically understanding that heaven is an extension of what God has given us in taste here on earth, it therefore stands to reason that the community of God's people that he brought together on earth will only be magnified and intensified in the place to come. My mom died when I was young. My sister has never forgotten God, or has never forgiven God for taking care of her. What can I say to her? You know, things like that are so hard because there isn't a stock formula or phrase. I encourage you to risk putting yourself on the line and letting God speak through you and praying hard in the moment. Spirit, speak through me. Let me get out of my way, and I think you'll be surprised how God will bring words through your lips that you might even later go, where did that come from? But I think you can say this. You know how much you love your sister? God loves her infinitely more. And God did not kill your sister. That was not his plan. Death is the enemy. God, in fact, died so we don't have to face death. That's the point. Heaven is meant to be a temporary thing to deal with this horror called death, not the Christian hope. What can you say to her? God loves your sister, and he's got her in a place better by far, and this, as bad as it hurts now, is not the last chapter of the story. Can you see your loved ones on earth? Yeah, I don't know. On one hand, in Revelation 6, you see the saints in heaven crying out, How long, O Lord, until you vindicate your people? 
Now, is that because they can see what's going on? Or is that because they bring with them their own memory and old pattern of what they experienced? I don't know. On the other hand, there's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16, where he talks about a, a rich man and, and, and a poor man named Lazarus. And then Lazarus, when he dies, is taken to heaven, and the rich man is sent to hell. And the rich man begs out to God, Lord, that you would send Lazarus just to give me a cup of cooled water. And God says, I can't. A chasm has been fixed between you and them so that he can't come and see what's going on with you. Now, one, that's a parable. How much do you read into it theological truths on side points that the story is just meant to carry along and make? Number two, the chasm is between heaven and hell, not heaven and earth. So it leaves us going like this. I don't know. Will Yankee and Cardinal fans be in heaven? No. <laughs> Do we know the same people we knew in heaven? Yeah, I, th I think that the Bible talks about it this way. That if, they, if your mom was a believer and now she's in heaven, will you get to see her there? I think so. And I don't think you're rummaging through a thousand seats going, man, where's her seat? You know what I mean? But you got the resurrection too. Don't forget about that. When God restores all things as it was meant to be. And how will we know if Christ is here? This is the difference between faith and hope. Hope is looking forward to resurrection in something we don't yet have. Faith is trusting that what God says is true. We don't see Christ here. Maybe we feel him sometimes. Maybe we sense him. Maybe we see the circumstantial things that lead us to believe that what he described about his presence is coming to fast. But, but no, I mean, it's not like you can... There he is. What he does, though, is he invites you to trust him. That whether you feel it or not, he's here. Do you have emotions in heaven? I think so. I think Revelation 6 shows that. Who does all the cooking? Not me. Will there be chocolate in heaven? No. No. You don't go to the bathroom in heaven, right? You can't have one without the other. Oh, okay. Don't confuse heaven with the resurrection of the dead. You are a spirit in heaven, which means you do not eat. There will not be chocolate in heaven. But will there be chocolate at the resurrection of the dead? You bet there will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if your wife goes before you, then you go. Are you still married? No. No, and this is why God uh, says marrying a widow who marries is not committing adultery. This is why marriage vows say not forever, but until death do you part. But does that mean that you won't know your wife here on earth in heaven? Does that mean you won't love her? Does that mean you won't have intimate connection with her? No, I'm not saying any of that at all. There is something in heaven that takes this thing called marriage. And though defying the construct we make on earth exemplifies and takes the ideas and patterns of what it's supposed to be in far more amazing ways. So when I say, no, you won't be married in heaven, don't lose hope or read too much into what I'm actually saying. Does everyone get to heaven? I wish. And God wishes more. 
But I think the Bible is clear. No, everyone does not get into heaven, despite the fact that God wants everyone in heaven because God allows us to choose. And there are people that want nothing to do with God. And if someone wants nothing to do with God, they probably don't want to be closer in his presence in his house. So sadly, I don't think everyone does get into heaven, but that's why it puts the impetus on you and me to keep praying for people and keep sharing with people and keep... keep striving for our loved ones to help them understand who God is and who God is not along the ways that they have come to believe that are simply just not true. And I'll take three more. If heaven doesn't go on forever and heaven comes down to earth, what will it be like and what will be different from what earth is like now? I'm going to get into this a lot more in two weeks. Come back on October 28th to really dig deep into this subject. However, I will leave you with one thought right now. When Jesus comes again and resets up the new heaven and the new earth, in essence, what he is doing is taking the Garden of Eden in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and restoring it. God meant you to be in Eden. The entire biblical storyline is saying that what was lost in Eden is going to be restored and let that drive your imagination of what it will be like. On the 28th, we'll get into that in detail. Do people who commit suicide go to heaven? Some do, yes. Suicide is not an unforgivable sin that keeps you out of heaven, carte blanche. Are there ghosts that come from heaven? Maybe. Maybe, and that might strike you as odd that I answer it that way. See, what I found is really important when you deal with theology is to actually look at what the Bible says as opposed to what we want it to say. And there's this odd example in the Old Testament where Samuel comes back from the dead as a spirit, as a ghost. Now, some will say that can't happen, so that has to be like a demon masquerading in disguise. It doesn't say that. That could be the case. I simply got to leave that one as an I don't know. But I do want to encourage you in this. None of you have to be worried about like being exiled from heaven or sent out to the suburbs, you know? You're not like, oh man, I thought I could go to heaven, but God's going to make me wander for a while. No, it doesn't work that way. And where does the Catholic idea of purgatory come from? And how do we put to rest the thought in our loved ones from that background? The idea of purgatory comes from this biblical idea, that what we do now carries into eternity. However, it becomes a distortion of what that means. Because the idea of purgatory is to say that if we are not purified enough now, we need to work off our sins, and I'm oversimplifying this, but go with it. We need to work off our sins before God will let us into heaven. I think, of all things, the Bible is so matter-of-factly clear that when Jesus died for our sins, it was once and for all. Our sins are paid. Our consciences are cleaned. We are cleared. We are forgiven. No ifs, ands, or buts. No matter what a lousy wretch you are, no matter how much your family doesn't like you, and no matter who at church thinks you stink, and no matter what reaping destruction you've left in your life, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are forgiven. Heaven awaits you immediately on death. And that is the questions we can take for today for time. So great questions, guys. As more come in, we encourage you to post them to Facebook throughout the week. Next Sunday, we talk about hell. How do we wrap our minds around that? So guys, I invite you to rise. Let's sing. And uh, let's come to the God who is in heaven and join with the thousands upon thousands who are worshiping there.